We are pleased to be joined by a true Catholic gentleman and a modern man of letters, Joseph Pierce. Stay tuned right after this. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us to another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are your hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. If you've been listening to us and you enjoy what we have to say, I'd love it if you just went to uh, Apple Podcast or um, Spotify and gave us a four or five star review, uh, even wrote us a review if uh, you're so inclined. It really does help the algorithm, helps us get out to more and uh, and further men like you. And finally, if you are um, really inspired and we have helped you grow in your faith and uh, become a better man and, and hopefully on your pursuit to holiness uh, and would you be open to donating, head over to patreon.com slash Catholic gentlemen. Check out our tiers there. We've got a bunch of new offerings that we're going to be planning on, what well, we are planning on, and they're coming out later this year, and uh, we'd be so grateful for your support. So as Sam was already suggesting, we are blessed today to have uh, Joseph Pierce on the show with us. Uh, If you don't know who he is, I'm going to give you a brief biography right now. So he's a premier literary biographer and author of our time. He has done a lot of reviewing the depths of the Catholic literary tradition. He is the author of acclaimed biographies of G.K. Chesterton, Oscar Wilde, Hilaire Belloc, uh, Tolkien, and books on English poetry and literature. He has hosted two 13-part television series about Shakespeare on EWTN and has also uh, presented documentaries on EWTN on Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. His verse drama, Death Comes from the War Poets, which I hope to talk a little bit more about later in this episode, was performed in Off-Broadway to critical acclaim. We could keep on going, Joseph, but uh, we'll stop there. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so grateful that you could be with us. So, Joseph, a lot of our listeners uh, don't know you. I know that you've been around, uh, you've been on a lot of shows, and you've been in the Catholic circles for many, many, many years, praise God, uh, teaching my wife and some of my brother and sister-in-law, you know, and different things there at Ave. Um, but uh, I'd love to uh, have a start from the beginning. I'd love to hear, you know, you you were over in uh, Britain and uh, you had a, a youth that was not, uh, you know, Catholic daily mass goer. Uh, you know, if you'd love to share a little bit about your your history, I'd be grateful to hear it directly from you. Certainly. Well, I, this will obviously be the uh, the in a nutshell version. But for those that want to know more, I actually wrote a book and uh, the title will give the clue as to where I've come from to to my journey to, to, to Christ and his church. I wrote a book called Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. <clears throat> so mm. um, I'm obviously a convert to the faith. Uh, I, at the age of 15, I joined a white supremacist uh, neo-Nazi organization in England. Uh, called the National Front, and I was involved in that from the age of 15 till I was in my mid-20s. I went to prison twice for publishing material likely to incite racial hatred. I was involved with the anti-Catholic terrorist organizations during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the Civil War in Northern Ireland, in the late 70s and 
through to the mid-1980s. Two of my friends were killed mm. by terrorist activity over there. So, um, uh, and it was largely due to discovering the writings of this man over my shoulder here, um, G.K. Chesterton, uh, and then other writers such as Hilaire Belloc and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, um, John Henry Newman, eventually Thomas Aquinas, that, that led me on the journey uh, to, to uh, conversion. And I was receiving the Catholic Church uh, on St. Joseph's Day, 1989, when I was 28 years old. So um, since then, I've been, well, since 1996, I was a, I've been a full-time writer. Although, I, as, you, as you mentioned in your introduction of me, I've also taught at uh, several Catholic universities and colleges, including Ave Maria University, uh, Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in New Hampshire, and uh, Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. So, but I, my main, my main job is, is, is as a writer, and uh, I've written about 30 books. Wow, that's so great. And so we have to, Sam, if you don't mind, we have to probe a little bit. How, how did you go from, uh, you, you mentioned being in prison not once, but twice. What, what was that journey uh, to Christ? What was one of the first uh, moments? Uh, yeah, just uh, it's such, we love conversion stories, and this is a conversion story par excellence. So I appreciate if you'd share a little more. <laughs> Well, the first prison sentence was when I was 20 years old. And uh, at that point, I was so radical, so full of hatred um, uh, that I considered myself to be a political prisoner and a prisoner of war. Even I used my cell as a gym to get myself in shape, you know, using my the bunk bed as a bench press and getting underneath it, et cetera, et cetera, to get myself in shape. Wow. So when I came out, I could be an even better political soldier. Uh, this was the terminology we used uh, that, that I had been before. But the second prison sentence was about just under five years later. Uh, I was um, uh, 24 when I was uh, when I was um, convicted the second time. And by this time, I thought, this is crazy. Uh, what am I doing here? I don't even believe this stuff. And now I'm facing a 12-month prison sentence for stuff I don't even believe. So basically, the journey began, the journey towards uh, Christ and the church began uh, in that period between the two prison sentences, uh, and largely through the discovery of the, the works of G.K. Chesterton. Now, I should say that I would not, in a million years, have picked up a book that was pro-Catholic. Mm. Uh, I wasn't interested in Christianity, mm. and, I, and I hated the Catholic Church. I was actually a member of an anti-Catholic secret society called the, uh, the Orange Order, as well as being involved with two te anti-Catholic terrorist organizations. So I was very anti-Catholic. But I was interested in politics, obviously. I was interested in politics. And someone said I should check out Chesterton's political ideas. So uh, this person suggested you, and I bought a book uh, of Chesterton essays for one particular essay in it, uh, which was about two-thirds of the way through. But I thought, well, I'll just pay for this book. And if this chap's that good, then I'll start reading from the beginning. And the rest of it, it was basically, the rest of the book was a defense of the Catholic Church. So the book was called The Well and the Shallows. The well is the Catholic Church. It's, it's, it has depth, profundity, life-giving water, and everything else is the shallows. Now, I'm not saying that I agreed with everything that Chesterton said, but my experience of first reading Chesterton was identical to C.S. Lewis's first uh, reading of Chesterton. Mm. Uh, C.S. Lewis was first read Chesterton during World War One. Uh, when he's in the British Army, uh, he was an atheist. Lewis was an atheist. Uh, but he picked up a, a volume of Chesterton's essays, as I did. Uh, and although he you know, despised 
Catholicism uh, and Christianity in general and was a, a, an atheist and considered himself to be a cynic, he couldn't help loving Chesterton. He said it was like falling in love. And the point is mm. that he, he, the Chesterton personality shines forth from the page. You feel as if you're with him. And you know, I loved his sense of humor. I loved his humility. I loved his goodness. I loved the way that he used reason. What was very important for me was, and my generation and sort of secular England, is you, you, you had to choose between uh, being rational or being religious. <laughs> you know, uh, you could be rational, in which case you had to forsake the comforts of religion, or you could be religion, religious, but you had to acknowledge you were not being rational. So mm. Chesterton was the first person to introduce me to, to fides et ratio, to faith and reason, wow. to, to the fact that faith and reason is an indissoluble marriage. Um, and that was mind-blowing to me, the very, the very fact that religious ideas were rational. Um, so this began the journey. And then again, through Chesterton, I, 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 I discovered Lewis and Belloc and others. So by the time I, but I, you know, I kept going through the motions, as uh, I, you know, the, it was what I call uh, an arm wrestle going on in my head and heart between these old ideas uh, and these new ideas I'm getting from Chesterton and others. And that, it was, that was what was going on between the two prison sentences. But by the time the second prison sentence, I was largely going through the motions in my public life, in politics, whereas my private life was reading all this good Catholic stuff. And I, that's where my sympathy was. So I thought, why, why on earth am I now lounging in prison for something I don't even believe in? So that was where I was at. And then I started going to mass during that second prison sentence. Um, and I tried to say the rosary. I had no idea how to say it. I picked up the rosary and I, I didn't know the uh, I didn't know the Hail Mary. I didn't know the Glory Be. Um, uh, I didn't know the Apostles' Creed, and I'd forgotten how to say the Our Father. <laughs> um, so, uh, but you know, I, I, what, I, what I did, I, I fumbled the beads and mumbled inarticulate prayers. And this was the first time I'd ever prayed. And then answers started flooding in, and what I now recognize as healing began to flood in, and this great desire for Christ. And that was the beginning of the journey during, during that second prison sentence. That's incredible. Yeah. I, uh, you, you and you can't be too careful about reading Chesterton if you uh, if you want to stay stay a good atheist. Um, I, I had a similar experience when first discovering him. I remember it was uh, at a, a Barnes and Noble, and I saw this strange little book called Orthodoxy, and I was like, "What is this about? Who's this Chesterton guy? He sounds vaguely familiar." I'd read, I think I read a couple essays of him in college or something like that, and so I, I. Uh, but I thought he's he, he, he's a turn of the century, you know, 20th century writer. I've never yet re read anything from a 20th century, early 20th century writer that's remotely interesting. I mean, just dry, boring. And then I just, I, but I started reading Orthodoxy and it just bowled me over. It just just turned my world upside down. I remember just being like electrified after reading this this book and and uh it, it it really changed everything for me so so Chesterton is a is a dangerous writer in the best sense of the word uh and it's amazing to hear about how he really actually, got actually Sam you know I don't know if you know but the words with which you started that your 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 uh waxing eloquent on Chesterton echoed almost exactly the words of C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis said he said an atheist is speaking specifically about Chesterton he said, "A sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading." So you're obviously you have your great minds think alike. You sound exactly like yeah. C.S. Lewis, which is <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> it's, 
Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I, that's a, that's a beautiful testimony and it is amazing how good writing, good thinking, clear thinking can, uh, excuse me, I'm a little, got a, a little head cold I'm getting over here, but, but can, uh, can really change hearts. Uh, it's not, it's not superfluous. It's, it's, uh, can be quite powerful. So, uh, I guess, you know, you came into the, you, you, you had this kind of profound conversion of heart and, um, you know, Christian is one thing, uh, but then Catholic, like what, what led you to the Catholic church? I mean, was it Chesterton? Was it these, uh, his writing or, or what led you from that bridge of like, okay, I'm no longer an atheist. I consider myself maybe a Christian of some sort, but then Catholicism, especially considering how anti-Catholic you were previously, um, how did you get to that point where the church became compelling for you? That's a great a great question. Um, I, I think that first of all, I was always aware, uh, at least in the back of my mind, that if Christianity was real, you know, in other words, if Christ was who he said he was, and um, then the, the, the Catholic Church is the real McCoy, mm -hmm. because it's been around since the beginning. Um, and also, it's the it's 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 the evident thing that everyone hates <laughs> um you know if, if it's real that's it um I, I think that was always in the back of my mind uh that you know the other types of christianity were like sort of diluted versions of it um but also of course i i, I you know, the, my first christian reading was chesterton and then i got to know belloc and so i got to understand certainly english history uh, of how the anglican church is, um, was basically established by henry the eighth uh, because he wanted to get his own wicked way um, and had nothing to do with being founded by Christ. Um, so um, immediately, I, I, I don't want to be an Anglican, which is what sort of nominally I was. I'd been baptized as an Anglican when I was a kid. Mm. We never went to church or anything like that. But, you know, I think, you know, in English culture, British culture, it's like, you know, if, if, if you're not a barbarian, you know, if, you're, if you consider yourself to be civilized, you know, you have your children christened. Um, only, only yeah. you know, even if you never go to church, you never pray, it's still something you do, like you get married in a church, even if you don't go to church. So that, so I was baptized, but, um, but you know, that was it. But so nominally I was an Anglican, but, um, uh, but as soon as I started getting interested in, in Christianity, I saw, I saw, you know, through Chesterton's eyes and Belloc's eyes that, uh, there was, there was only one living fighting Christianity. And ultimately there's only one mystical body of jesus christ and the only one church militant um and it's, and it's the catholic church um and also during that that second prison sentence i read a book called which i recommend i don't know if it's in print now apologetics and catholic doctrine by an archbishop sheehan who is uh, I, I think australian but again brilliant because the first part is philosophy you know the proofs of god's existence etc and then the second half is uh uh is is, is doctrine um so i i read that but this is just this blew me away this was much much deeper as an understanding of the cosmos understanding of the human person um that than anything i'd ever i'd, I'd ever um I, I come across before so that's why i started going to mass started praying and started wanting to read more and more catholic books at that point that's wonderful yeah it reminds me of uh the quote, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that uh, the Catholic Church is for for great saints or great sinners, but uh, for for respectable people, the the Anglican Church will do or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that that was Oscar Wilde. You're completely correct. And again, it, it, 
brilliant example of Oscar Wilde's wit. The Oscar Wilde also said, and you know, something which is very consoling if you're, if you're in a prison cell, uh, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. You know, and that, so, you know, that, that, that's also very important because we are, I mean, we are, we are all in the gutter, yeah. right? We're all miserable sinners. We're yes. all broken. We all have our issues. But the point is, we're in the gutter, but are we face down or are we face up? Right? And, and, and that's, that's the key thing, right? And if you like, conversion is turning upwards. Um, and, and and that was, you know, so it didn't, it didn't stop me from being a sinner. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, it helped me become less of one. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not as much of a sinner as I used to be. But the point is, I was looking up and uh, looking at the stars and looking at that through the stars, if you like, to the man who made the stars, the God who made the stars. There's a wonderful poem, by the way, by the Catholic poet Roy Campbell, very interesting fellow, um, convert. But he wrote a sonnet to the sun, and the first part of it is, um, Oh, let your shining orb grow dim of Christ, the mirror and the shield, that I may gaze through you to him, see half the miracle revealed. Mm. And it's true because mm. every sunrise is God's work of art. It's a free art gallery and every sunrise is unique. It invites us to notice it. And Thomas Aquinas states explicitly in the Summa basically that, um, that we only come to reality, reality, right? We only come through reality on our knees. In other words, the, the path of true perception comes with virtue, specifically the virtue of humility. And it's humility that gives us a sense of gratitude, and it's gratitude that opens the eyes in wonder. And it's only when the eyes are opened in wonder that we move to contemplation, and it's only when we move to contemplation that we experience dilatatio, dilation, the opening of the mind and soul into the fullness of reality. So if we've never looked... You know, you know, it's a Catholic gentleman, so it's a men's site, right? And it's with it, uh, this macho nonsense. You know, if, if, if we've never looked at a sunrise, we're not real men, right? Because we're meant to do what Thomas Aquinas says, and we're meant to see the rising of the sun as a sign of the rising of Christ. The setting of the sun is a sign of death, but also knowing there's mourning. So death and, and rebirth, uh, and just the, 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 the presence of such beauty. The, 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 the existence of one beautiful thing, is enough to exercise the devil. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Amen. And I, I'm glad actually, because that was actually the question I was looking for was your conversion sounded very intellectual and poetry, you know, more focused on, I would say beauty and, and, and my you know, humble opinion, but, but you did such a great job of kind of wetting the two and, and how, you know, you're, you're working. So, would you say that your conversion, though, I mean, I will ask the question, not speak for you, but will you say that your conversion was was primarily intellectual and then it and then it worked into to beauty? Or would you say that you were captivated by um, by beauty first? I mean, you obviously came from an intellectual literary tradition uh, even before you were Catholic. So, you know, how, how did that work for you? Well, that, that's a great question. Again, it's going to take I, I got to answer it in two parts first of all okay, my conversion uh and then i want then I, then I want to address the issue of beauty uh, separately okay but great. my conversion i was absolutely convinced convinced it was entirely rational it was a process of reason so you, you, you use your you, to use your word it's inter, intellectual mm -hmm. um uh, and it was only later looking back with the wisdom of hindsight that i realized the other thing that was happening simultaneously was healing in other words that the the God's loving grace working on me, um, mm. but, but certainly the process was, was rational. I was I had had intellectual questions, 
that I that I required intellectual rational answers to be in order to move forward. And, and so it was very much a rational process. But now to, to the question of beauty, um, I'm going to insist that beauty is part of Vatio. Um, and that's that, that we mustn't fall into the um, the romantic, the, the, the trap of the romantic movement and believe that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that beauty is somehow something which is emotional and therefore um, irrational. What I, what I first you go back to the Greek philosophers, uh, the good, the true and the beautiful were, if you like, a, a prefiguring of the idea of the Trinity. Uh, the pagans sort of you know, hadn't got that revelation, but the revelation, if you like, was a fulfillment of, these, of this rational approach to God. The good, the true and the beautiful are inseparable. They're actually one. The mm. good is always true and beautiful. The true is always beautiful and good. The beautiful is always good and true. So therefore, the, the, the beauty is part of this rational trinity. Mm. Um, and and, and the, the other thing I, I, I so you know, if beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, it's in the thing beheld. The only question is our ability to see it. Are we blind? Or do we have eyes? Are we deaf? Or do we have ears? Um, so uh, there's an object, there's an objective characteristic, objective reality to, to, to beauty, which um, and I and I and I talk about this a lot. That when I think when Jesus Christ says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life," he is saying, "I am the good, the true, and the beautiful," because basically the way is the way of goodness or love. The the, the true, the truth is the way of reason, but the Beauty is the life, mm. right? You know, that, that it's, it's when you see the beauty in something that you see the life in it. And in order to see the life in something, you have to have a life in you to see it. So that so so that, that's again back to Aquinas, that we have to see with eyes wide open in wonder, right? So there, there, there's the inseparability between seeing reality and seeing the beauty in reality. And, and for someone like Aquinas, of course. That, that the the truth ideas are beautiful as they are love in practice virtue is beautiful and that, so not just physical objects but metaphysical objects but they're they're inseparable so the path of beauty is the path of reason mm. praise god no i really appreciate that and i yeah honestly something that's not uh brought up frequently enough in fact i I, mean, I could see Benedict Rochelle trying to, well, arguing that and, and really pushing towards that and, and some things I've read of his, but, uh, but yeah, what a beauty, what, thank you, you know, for, for stating it like yeah, that. Well, one one so thing important. I sometimes complain about, particularly in Catholic education, you've got very good Catholic schools. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, the beauty is like a, you know, yeah, you have to have goodness and truth. Yeah. You have to, obviously you have to treat, teach uh, fetus at that. So you have to teach virtue. You know, and you have to teach truth, reason, rational. But beauty is like a trailer, you know, that you hitch on the back if, you, if you're not in a hurry, but you leave behind if you are. And for me, that is missing the whole triune splendor, the very tartis splendor, right? the, 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 the splendor of truth, because splendor is a mark of beauty. Truth is not something dry and arid. You have to, beauty is part of it. Yeah, I think that's something our culture desperately needs too, and kind of our post post uh, <laughs> post 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 modern rational like like I mean I think our culture is kind of burned out on intellect you know uh, since the enlightenment has kind of like okay we're gonna try this rational way of perceiving the world um, you know and we're gonna kind of the world is a big mechanism a machine. 
um, and everything can be explained to these physical laws acting on matter. And, and uh, that's just kind of the way that we're going to try to explain everything about the human experience. And that experiment failed, which kind of led to post-modernity, um, which was, uh, you know, trying to grapple with reality in a different way, kind of turning towards the subjective experience of things. But there's there's and there's an opportunity there where if we lead with beauty, uh, beauty moves the heart, it moves, uh, and eventually it moves the mind as well. But it also, it, in a sense, it kind of you know. And I think Pope Benedict, uh, and I do want to talk about your new book here in a minute. Um, but Pope Benedict talks about how you know beauty has a capacity to kind of almost bypass the intellect. Like, of course, it's there's truth contained within beauty, but it it kind of bypasses the mind and goes straight to the heart. And you can find yourself moved by a profound experience of beauty. Um, and your mind has to kind of catch up to that. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but, but you're moved by this experience of beauty. And, uh, and if we look at the church and just kind of this, it's 2000 year history. It's like this long outpouring of beauty. And my conversion kind of took place and, you know, started at least uh, in an art gallery and just gazing on the beauty of Catholic artwork, uh, it really moved my heart. And I didn't even know what I was drawn to really at the time. Like it yeah. took later on, I kind of figured out what it, what was appealing about it. But but just this beauty, this this Catholic artwork represented was was deeply moving to me. And so I think our culture as well, you know, look how captivated our culture is by storytelling, you know, by cinematography, by by all of these things that are very beauty oriented. Um, and I think that, that there is an opportunity there. So I'm wondering, like, you're, you're a writer and uh, you've uh, written, like you said, 30 books, uh, probably hundreds of essays, uh, you know, in, in your work. Like, how do you try to weave in beauty into your work uh, and kind of bring that experience to people? Well, I mean, uh, uh, the, the the key thing is here, you know, that that in our you 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 you're spot on what you say about the Enlightenment and postmodernity, that you know the goodness, truth, and beauty are, are one, as we've said, but um, somehow they're also distinct. Right? Father, Son, Holy Ghost, right? We we can't separate them, but somehow or other, we're not, we're not meant to see just one monolithic thing. We're meant to see a manifestation of a living uh, relational reality. So. Um, same thing with goodness, truth, and beauty. So goodness, the way, um, has been perverted in our modern world because goodness, as, as, as Christians understand it, is, is the, a rational choice. Love, love is rational. Love is to rationally choose to lay down your life for the beloved, even if the beloved is your enemy. So it's a rational choice. For the modern world, love is an emotion. It's a feeling. It's, it's irrational. So mm. nothing you can do about it. Either it hits you or it doesn't hit you. It, it, passes like the like the breeze and then you don't love any longer so we have diametrical literally antithetical understandings of love one is sacrificing yourself on the on the altar of the other and the other is narcissistic sacrificing the other on the altar of the self they literally diametrically opposed and then reason then when you get relativism right instead of saying quid est veritas we say quid est veritas right what is truth? It's something either doesn't exist or it's unknowable. So why waste your time with it? So if you when you've got a culture which has perverted the meaning of love, that has perverted the meaning of reason, 
beauty is what remains as a way of getting past those watchful dragons, uh, which is what Pope Benedict was talking about, and um, uh, also um, that's a fam favorite phrase of Chesterton and uh, Tolkien and Lewis. You have to get past those watchful dragons. I want to give two very quick examples of the power of beauty. Yeah. Uh, some, some, telling stories, you could say much more about storytelling, but to convey good, good story, imagine there's a, a Catholic, a Protestant, a Jew, uh, an atheist, a Muslim, uh, and uh, they don't go into a bar. It's how you think they should go into a bar. They go into a bar. I mean, they could, but they didn't. They went into a field, and they went into a field in the middle of the night, and they sat down, and they were facing east. And an hour or so later, the sky begins to change color, and there's pinks and what have you, and maybe the sun rises, uh, and you can look directly at it. Midsummer, you know, four o'clock in the morning, Sun rises, it's just a white disc. Remind the Catholic amongst them of the, of the elevation of the host. And then it becomes red. And you can still, still look directly at it. And when it becomes red and the sky is turning pink and purple, uh, and then it rises and becomes gold, you can't look at it any longer. All of those people, irrespective of where they're coming from, with their theological, philosophical beliefs, have been touched by something. And they all feel unless they're unless they're solely broken by pride that, and cynicism they're not don't want to look like Gollum, um they are moved upwards right they're they're lifted up and, and and definition of prayer is lifting up the mind and the heart to god that sort of edif edification is prayer even if it's inarticulate and then taking from god's creation now to man's sub-creation our own works of art another story very briefly once upon a time there was a rock, and this was a very beautiful rock, uh, but no one had ever seen it. It had been hidden for millions of years, and then someone dug up the rock. Now it could be seen, and people looking at the rock, one or two people with eyes say, that's actually quite a beautiful rock. But one person came past who had better eyes than everybody else, and he said, that's not a beautiful rock. That is the beautiful rock. And he took the rock away and he did things with it. And today, if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and you go through the main entrance of St. Peter's Basilica and turn to the right, the first side chapel, you'll see Michelangelo's Pieta with the mother of God cradling her dead son in her arms. Every time anybody sees that when they walk in St. Peter's Basilica, if they're not dead, right, their hearts are one lifted to God, even if they're an atheist or Muslim. Because everybody understands the relationship between mother and child and death and life and grieving and suffering and sorrow. Uh, so people see that and their hearts and minds are lifted. That's the power of beauty. And as you, and as you said, Sam, that might be just the first, the first step. Because then you start, what it does, it prompts questions. And the questions then require answers. And that's where the, the kiss of beauty becomes a rational engagement. Yeah, very much. So... We want to go into poetry, but before we get there, what what else? I mean, so yes, society has perverted um, truth, goodness, and beauty, and and we're struggling with this. But what else would you say are the primary impediments of of individuals such as ourselves, or just anybody within the church? Any any individuals in their thirties, forties that are are trying to pursue these things, but but struggle with it, right? So, uh, I mean, I have your your book, um, uh, Flowers uh, of Heaven. And and I, I greatly enjoyed it, and it actually illuminated a, a huge part of my your anthology there of, of of collected poems. And I remember just going through it, and I would 
I'd set aside time every day, but I had never experienced poetry uh, that just kind of opened my eyes and opened my heart. You know, it really brought peace into my, didn't the chaos of my days were, were uh, just silenced by that. But then we wake up in the morning and we're not, you know, constantly pursuing that. Our phone is pulling us in one direction. Our, you know, I've got multiple monitors for my day job and, and things like that. So, so w- what do you think are some necessary conditions to, to help somebody uh, delve deeper into, you know, this deeper understanding uh, of life. And I know that's a huge question, but uh, with poetry in mind, as we're shifting towards that, I know that I've talked to many a men about reading poetry and, um, and they'll get behind reading like if, you know, from um, Rudyard you know, Kipling, because, because there's something very masculine about that. But, but to actually delve into a lot of the poetry that you present, uh, it's just like frou-frou or, you know, it's been feminized or, you know, in their worldview and, and anyways, I, I just I'd love to to move towards poetry, but then talk a little bit about that, which is keeping us from uh, from really embracing that. Well, ultimately, uh, the importance of poetry, uh, first of all, it's, it's very similar to what we've been saying about beauty. Uh, it's the most beautiful language. It's language distilled to its purity. But but let me just say one, one thing, first of all, that, that, yeah. that we have to understand if you're going to understand poetry and beauty, we have to understand time. Mm-hmm. The thing about time, it, we can't make it. The the, the wonderful Jesuit poet uh, Jeremy Hopkins said in his poem "The Wreck of the Deutschland," we are soft sift in an hourglass. In other words, each of us has our own individual hourglass with our own individual amount of sand in it. We don't know how much sand it is, but it's sift, sifting away. And there's nothing we can do to stop the sand sifting away. It's all going to mm-hmm. happen, and when it all passes through to the other side, we die. Right, we are soft sift in an hourglass, so we can't make time. Time is not ours. So when, for instance, we don't own our lives, we owe our lives because it was taken away from us. Not when we, if we owned it, we wouldn't have to give it up. Yeah, we possess it. We don't possess it. We own it, and we owe it. So, um, so that's the first. So if we can't make time, the only there are only two things we can do with it. We either take take it or we waste it. Now. Spending time in either prayer or poetry, and they are connected, is taking time. Spending time with distraction, mindless distraction, uh, which a lot of us spend much too much time with distracting ourselves to death in wasted time. That's what we're doing. So uh, one of the beautiful things about poetry is it forces us to slow down. And one of the reasons that many men, uh, women as well, I'm sure, but men, don't like poetry is they're in a hurry, right? They don't want time taken, right? They so they'd rather waste it doing something yeah. which is mindless. Um, so poetry forces you to slow down. That's that's the first good thing about it. It takes time out of your day to do something which engages with the good, the true, and the beautiful. It's like prayer, and so I would say that ideally every day we should find time, obviously for prayer. We need to find time for silence, um, and and one of the pl- one of the places and spaces we can spend our silence is in the reading of poetry. Wow, that's that's quite a statement. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate that, and and uh, and how true. Yeah, because I know I bring up I bring up my phone because right these things and and Sam and I have talked many times about getting dumb phones and things like that. Right, things to to reduce the 
tentacles of technology that just you know wrap up around us and, and try and grip us uh, and keep us from that. But I mean, I can I can testify to to your comment about uh, in reading poetry and embracing it for the first time after I got your book uh, was uh, it was some 10, 12 years ago, and it was um, it was powerful and it was I, I loved it. So liked your comment, wasting time. That's so true. Let's go for it, sir. I think I, if I if I if, oh, if I may just make a, if I may just make a pun because I, I love words. Yeah. You know about about cell phones. Um, I, I, I said to someone recently who wanted me to download an app to speak at the conference. I said, listen, <laughs> I said, you know, I, I spent um, two periods of my life already in a cell. I'm not going to spend the rest of it in another one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that's so true. Well, and I, uh, I just want to second the 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 kind of uh, advocacy for, for poetry. I think guys are... are just scared of I don't want to be soft or what I just you know what get over yourself like it, it's a it, the this just this hyper macho like uh aesthetic that a lot of guys are drawn to is just it's not real masculinity I mean some of those well, no, I mean, it's, the, uh, yeah go ahead yeah the macho is absolutely not not masculine the macho is selfishness the macho is pride pride yeah. is the absence of humility um and pride is the enemy what does pride do by the way come back to what we said pride being the absence the, the, the proper definition of pride is the absence of humility because evil has no existence it's the absence of the good right so yeah. pride is the absence of humility if you don't have humility you will not have a sense of gratitude if you don't have a sense of gratitude, your eyes will not be open in wonder. If your eyes are not open in wonder, you will not be moved to contemplation. You'll be wasting time instead of taking it. And if you're not moved to contemplation, instead of your mind dilating into the fullness of reality, it will shrink and shrivel. And one of the most realistic depictions of the human psyche that's got carried away with its pride is Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. That is exactly what happens to our souls if we refuse to take time on our knees. And if we think that's soft, we need to grow up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I can say too, you know, it, that good poetry can lead to prayer, like it can move your heart. And before you know it, you are in that, that humble, kind of a wonderstruck uh, atmosphere that is, is essentially prayer. Um, and I, I think I, a lot of guys, I, if I can, Sam, I'm sorry, I'm beginning to interrupt. And I apologize. But I, I'm, I'm obviously enthusiastic about this. Uh, great poetry doesn't lead to prayer. Great poetry is prayer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is that is what I said earlier about that? You know, looking at the statue uh, of uh, the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta is prayer, because yeah. the lifting up of the mind and heart to God is prayer. It doesn't have to be our spoken words, whether we whether we're, we're doing it from memory or or, 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 or doing it um, uh, extemporary. The, the, the important thing is that the the take, taking time. In silence, in order to lift up our mind and heart, is prayer, and, yeah. and poetry, good poetry, is one way of praying. Yes, and and if you've uh, tried reading poetry and it it wasn't that wasn't your experience, you probably weren't reading good poetry. I mean, uh, I mean, a lot, uh, there there is a lot of rubbish out there, uh, but the the Catholic tradition, thanks be to God, has some amazing poetry in it. So you, uh, John mentioned your, your little anthology uh, of uh, a thousand years of Catholic poetry. Um, uh, can you just give us a few names? I mean, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins and some of these guys are very famous, but there's, there's, I know there's a wealth of others. Do you just share some of maybe your favorite poets? 
Yeah, so uh, first of all, that book, Flowers of Heaven, 1,000 Years of Christian Verse, is actually out in a new edition with Tan Books called Poems Every Catholic Should Know. So if people oh, want to get a copy of it, they need to look at that, look up that title, not the title of the original edition in the, uh, that you have, because that's out of print. We'll but put that so in show notes. Great. Should know. So it, 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 it's a thousand years of Christian verse arranged chronologically. So uh, great poets, or where does one start? You did mention Hopkins. We have to mention Hopkins because he's a, a marvelous poet. Uh, fav- personal favorite person of mine, T.S. Eliot, Hilaire Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, uh, Siegfried Sassoon, the war poet, um, yeah. who who became a Catholic when he was 71 years old. Um, but his whole, whole of his life was a pilgrimage towards Christ. It just took him a long while to get there. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, and I could get Francis Thompson. Uh, I, 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 could, I could have, I don't know where to stop. Really, the, the so-called the so-called romantic poets that, you know, that we as men, we're not supposed to like. Um, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, winning words with John Keats are all marvelous poets um, that they really do allow us to open our minds and hearts uh, in, into the fullness of reality. If we, if we read it, Take take the time and read on our knees. Yes, yes. I I, uh, I read quite a few of those in in uh, college when I was kind of having my own conversion of, of beauty, if you will. And uh, uh, I didn't realize that Siegfried Sassoon uh, had become Catholic. That's incredible. Uh, I remember like just being like shocked by his descriptions of World War One. Like, oh my goodness. Uh, but. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've heard so, poetry. Uh, oh, go for it, Sam, please. Uh, I was just, I'm sorry, I've been talking a lot, but no, it's great. <laughs> um, no. I guess I just want everyone, it's like, you know, you, you come from this incredible uh, English tradition of uh, letters, and, and uh, you've mentioned so many of the names, you know, Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and Bellock and, and uh, dozens of others uh, of these, these great Christian writers. And now you're, you know, you're, you're one yourself. And I guess, I'm just wondering, uh, what is it? What is it special to you about the English tradition uh, of letters? Well, I've, I've actually got uh, a new book, new book out now called "Faith of Our Fathers: A, a History of True England," which is actually a two thousand year history of, of Catholic England from the first century. First Christian missionary came to England around sixty three A.D. Wow! Uh, uh, so it's two thousand years of Christian history there, Catholic history, um, and, and even the time of the persecution is to me that's the passion of of, of England when England is crucified. We're one hundred and fifty years where where Catholic priests and laity were put to death merely for the practice of their faith. That to me is beautiful. Um, you know, the passion of Christ is beautiful. Um, uh, it, you know, it's ugly as well. Um, there's, there's, there's a paradox there. It's also the crucifixion is the kiss of Christ to the sinner. Um, you know, we, we do it in return. We do the Judas kiss. Um, speaking of which, by the way, I talked about poetry. One of my favourite lines from, from poetry, which is a, if you put it into politics, uh, Oscar Wilde wrote that anarchy is freedom's own Judas. Think about that. Hmm. Yeah, what it betrays it betrays freedom with a kiss. Yeah, no, I think uh, yeah, uh, so much great things to think about. I know I, you've got such great one-liners too. We gotta we gotta put those in the show notes as well uh, to to contemplate on. But you're a teacher, and so praise God for that. So. Um, 
Yeah, I know. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Death Comes from the War Poets. I haven't personally uh, read it or seen it, and I'd love to talk to you what your inspiration uh, was there, because I know those are a couple of your favorite poets, and 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 just, you know, let us men know, uh, you know, where we can uh, learn more. Well, I mean, if, 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 uh, if, if there are certain men who feel uncomfortable reading poems about hosts of golden daffodils uh, yeah. a, a good place to start is actually the war poetry of Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen which is gruesome in its its realistic depiction of the ugliness of modern warfare particularly World War One that's what they were fighting in and if you want to start somewhere start with Wilfred Owen's poem Dolce et decorum est Great. Latin has fitting is um so Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori how sweet and fitting is the die for your country that's that's the Latin phrase that he's commenting upon that poem but anyway so i was fascinated by the war poets i love the war poets i love their poetry wilfred Owen was killed in world war one and secret soon lived to be a ripe old age into his 80s died in 1967 but uh, I became aware during the writing of one of my books called Literary Converts of Siegfried Sassoon being a convert to the faith, which made me more interested in him. Uh, and I started, I noticed that whole of his life um, was sort of a progress towards Christ mm-hmm. uh, and towards his church. So when he's received into the church in 1957, um, when he's about 70 years old, um, uh, it's, a, it's, the, it's a, a consummation of a lifelong love affair. So. My idea for Death Comes for the War Poets, which is a first tapestry, the first drama, uh, is that uh, we have Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, these two friends in World War One. but the third character in it is Death. And Death is a female spirit. And it's, it's about two conversions. It's about the conversion of Siegfried Sassoon, but it's also about the conversion of Death. Because who or what is Death, okay? Um, so the first part of the play, when Sassoon and Owen are basically cynical and, and anti-Christian. Death is like a, a witch, uh, one of the weird sisters in Macbeth, uh, uh, sort of sexy in a harlot, harlotish way, way. Um, mm. uh, but ba- basically ultimately deadly. And uh, she, she carries off Wilfred Owen. Um, but then as... Siegfried Sassoon grows in, in, in reason and faith and embraces uh, uh, Christianity, embraces Catholicism. Death herself is transfigured from this, this dark, hag-like witch into something almost angelic and almost Marian. Yeah. Like virgin. Because what is death? Once you know, death where is thy sting, right? Once you once you have a, 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 a an understanding of the resurrection and the life, right? Death is merely a gateway yeah. to the presence of God, and so yeah. that was the so that's that's that was the idea of it. And thankfully, you know that there was there was a Blackfriars Theatre Theatre Company and the Storm Theatre Company got together, and they they produced it off Broadway a few years ago. And and I what I was astonished by here, I thought that uh that the that only catholics would be interested in it yeah i I was astonished that how many secular new york people think they must be very liberal most of them and even the secular uh theater reviews um gave it good reviews so to me this was the power and and, there are scenes in it where some secret students on his knees praying the rosary (sighs) 
Um, you know, and, and, and it, 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 got, it somehow it got past those watchful dragons. Um, yeah. So that, that, that and you see, you get these people that have gone there, they've been touched, right? Their life's been changed because they've seen a positive depiction of a Christian understanding of life and death. And then they quite, I mean, everybody has to face death. What is death? It's a primal question. The people there, the, wherever they're coming from, politically, uh, any other beliefs or lifestyles, right? They, they they were they were in some sense edified, lifted up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. No, I appreciate that. So I've heard poetry described as a higher moment to meaning ratio in life, and and if we view it as prayer and we view it as this transformation, you could almost argue it's the highest, you know moment to meaning ratio and i just never thought about it like that so i appreciate that very the most, much the most powerful prayers that we say are poems yeah you know uh, so, so that that's the whole point is that really ultimately to express praise and worship you know i don't care about praise and worship music here uh, but to <laughs> yeah. express praise and worship you know you, you have to do it with the, with the distilled purity of the language Right, yeah. not with not with loose or ugly language, but distilled purity, and that's what poetry is. It's the distilled purity of the language. That's why we poetry sings. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it was. I think it was Carl New, Cardinal Newman who said that like every Christian has the duty to become a poet in the sense that not that you actually write poetry, but that you see the world as a poet sees it, where everything does speak to you of of a. Uh, presences that um, go beyond what meets the eye you know and that's what poets are really trying to capture and convey is is a way of seeing the world um and in in successful poets can can create that same sense of, of awe and wonder that they were experiencing in, in, within you um but again we return to chesterton because i think one of the the most beautiful gifts that he gave me was just that sense of wonder that that things aren't supposed to be taken for granted uh, that that everything is a miracle everything is a gift uh, and if you can approach life with that sense of of uh, you know i think he said like blessed blessed is he who expects expected nothing where you shall always be surprised like everything's a continual surprise when you approach life with this this sense of of uh just surprise at everything <laughs> uh everything is amazing uh is like, well, like Chester, the, yeah, yeah go ahead well, chesterton, chesterton said one of my favorite chesterton aphorisms was we don't live in the best of all possible worlds we live in the best of all impossible worlds give me miraculous eyes to see my eyes those terrible crystals made alive in me more beautiful than all the things they see, more miraculous than all the things they see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to just kind of end by, uh, at least for me, like I want to talk about your new book on Pope Benedict because right. Pope Benedict is someone who is dear to my heart. He was Pope when I came into the church and his That's writings awesome. are just so incredible. But but you you felt moved to write a book about him and about his ministry and so could you just tell us a little bit about that yeah so i have a new book out uh so i have two new books out i've mentioned the, the uh yeah. faith of our fathers uh history of true england that's ignatius press but uh, benedict XVI, defender of the faith is recently published by tan books and it's a defense of the life and legacy of benedict XVI, who i think is a great pope who at the moment seems to be being somewhat uh not appreciated as he should be yes um uh and you know actually drawing into the to the um 
the conversation we've had, uh, one of my favorite uh, statements by Pope Benedict, he says that in the end, the only defense for the church are the great saints she's produced and the great works of beauty. Um, so this is a man who understands exactly what we've been talking about uh, in the last hour. Um, and, and for me, he, he epitomizes faith and reason, he epitomizes courage, uh, he epitomizes an appreciation of beauty. He loves classical music. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and he loved the beauty of the liturgy. I mean, his book, uh, Spirit of Liturgy, just shows that the highest prayer and the highest poem is the actual sacred liturgy itself. Um, and that, so he was at great pains to preserve and protect that. And I thank God for him for that um so no I, I i love the man and my book really is uh, is a tribute to him and an act of love on my part for a great holy shepherd of the church yeah no benedict the 16th means the world to to me and my family my wife and i have made the joke many times that he's one of our our you know primary uh coffee uh go-to's when we get to heaven is like we just sit down and have a coffee with <laughs> with with benedict the 16th and, and i can never get enough of him and, and i'm so grateful what would you say to all those people that are are um kind of accusing and uh and maybe profaning you know his the who he is as a man you know currently and was as a pope well i i the most the people that do not like Pope Benedict are modernists. In other words, they don't actually like what the Catholic Church is. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I sometimes say that, that, that to those that call him a Rottweiler, um, uh, you know, Rottweiler is a, a guard dog. Um, those who actually are trying to do uh, to pillage the church don't like the guard dog. But he's not a Rottweiler. He's actually a German shepherd. Um, and and the, the thing about the German shepherd, to you who do not, do not like the German shepherd, wolves in sheep's clothing don't like the shepherd, the German shepherd. Um, and uh, what's the only thing worse than a wolf in sheep's clothing? It's a wolf in shepherd's clothing. Mm. So you know, when, we, when we have leaders of the wow. church who oppose this holy man, it's because they're enemies of the church, enemies of Jesus Christ and his mystical body. Wow. You know how to bring out the zingers. I, <laughs> I think that's so great. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Sam, you were going to say, I, I mean, uh, if continuing uh, with the book, what do you hope uh, to accomplish by this book? Right. I mean, I think uh, I did read uh, uh, Cardinal Pell's um, endorsement of your book. And I, I part of me really agrees with the idea of him becoming a doctor of the church, you know, as others like St. Louis de Montfort and stuff like that, I wish would someday become. But, you know, the church doesn't ask my opinion on anything. Praise God. So I'd love to hear you I mean, and your intent behind the book. The important thing is that you know Pope Benedict now just recently turned 95 years old. He has his eye on the finishing line. The yeah. end of the world for each of us is the moment we die, and that could be tomorrow for each of us. So rather than worrying about what the state of the church is going to be like 50 years from now, we should be worrying about what state of our soul is going to be like tomorrow if that's when we meet our maker. So for, for Pope Benedict now, he's got his eyes on heaven. He's got his eyes on the finish line. That's the only place he needs to have his eyes now. It's the only place we need to have our eyes for that matter. And that in itself is an example we should be looking to follow. Yeah, agreed. Very much. So we'll put that in the show notes so that people can uh, get that book from 
tan books. And um, I guess the last question for us is, is Joseph Pierce, what else would you tell men uh, today who are addicted to their technology and their cell phones and maybe haven't ever even had the opportunity to experience this uh, public school raised as my, as myself was, and it wasn't something that we, we um, really, you know, went into, never had to memorize, et cetera. What would you tell men, where would they start to start appreciating poetry or, or, or grab poetry, or if you don't want to even talk about poetry and you just want to share something, you know, that men need to start doing these days, we'd love to hear that. Well, I think the key thing is, I mean, I'm actually going to take the opportunity to uh, advise people to, to check out my own website, yeah. which is jpierce.co, j-p-e-a-r-c-e.co, because there, that's what, uh, well, I post all the stuff that I'm doing I'm interested in, which is basically... Uh, evangelizing the, cow, the culture through the power of beauty. And I mean, you remember the word poetry comes from the, the Greek word poesis. The Greek word poesis means to create. Mm. And basically we are meant to be creative because we are the imago dei, the image of God. And the imagination is our use of uh, the imago dei in us to create as God creates. So creativity is important and the great works of beauty that our culture, our Christian culture for 2000 years has produced is something we need to know more about. So they can check out my website and they want to go behind the inner sanctum and join the, uh, join the inner sanctum that I have a, I have a poem of the week podcast. Oh, great. Poetry uh, every week. And then also two, three new podcasts, one about poetry, uh, one um, just revisiting old favorites, uh, literature, uh, and then a third is whatever else I want to talk about. So there's three new podcasts and an essay in the inner sanctum, but just in the, the publicly accessible podcast part of the website, anything I'm writing anywhere, things such as this that I do, when you send yeah. me the link, you know, we'll find this way onto, on, onto the website. So if people want to check out, you know, what I'm doing to evangelize uh, the culture through the power of beauty. That's one thing they can do with their devices that would not be a waste of time, but taking time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, you know, men listening to this uh, podcast, if, if listening to Joseph Pierce and his uh, wonderful accent and uh, reading poetry isn't enough for you, you know, we can't help you. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, definitely go check that out. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you. So yeah, Joseph, just thank you so very much for your time, what you're doing for the church, what you're doing for the world and what you're doing for uh, men like us. Uh, we just uh, couldn't be more grateful for you taking the time out of your busy uh, life and day to, uh, to meet with us and have this conversation. Well, my pleasure. And, 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 and you keep up the great work you're doing because this has been a very, very engaging uh, and edifying conversation. And uh, if this is what you do, do every week, then keep doing it because you're doing, you're doing great work. God bless you. We do. Thank you. Well, as we love to end all of our episodes, be a man, be a saint.